Hey friends, this is Dixon Kavanaugh, and welcome to another episode of Out Loud with Dixon, where we will explore wisdom, get creative, and better appreciate this fun, chaotic, and beautiful world that we live in. Today, we will be reading and reviewing The 4-Hour Workweek by author Timothy Ferris. Like other book reviews I've done in the past, in this episode we will read through sections of The 4-Hour Workweek, and I'll provide analysis and key takeaways interspersed throughout the reading. And to give you a taste for what this book is all about, a quick excerpt from the intro. Quote, From using Jedi mind tricks to disappear from the office, to designing businesses that finance your lifestyle, there are paths for every comfort level. How does a Fortune 500 employee explore the hidden jewels of China for a month and use technology to cover his tracks? How do you create a hands-off business that generates $80,000 per month with no management? It's all here. This book is for anyone who is sick of the deferred life plan and wants to live life large instead of postpone it. Case studies range from a Lamborghini-driving 21-year-old to a single mother who traveled the world for five months with her two children. If you're sick of the standard menu of options and prepared to enter a world of infinite options, this book is for you. End quote. And I can hear it already. Sounds too good to be true. Just another internet shyster promising an extravagant lifestyle with no work. But I promise you, that's not what our friend Tim Ferriss is selling. If anything, he's promoting a mindset and approach to life that maximizes our productivity. He's offering a system that clarifies our real goals and then outlines a manageable, tangible series of steps for attaining them. Also, we now have the power of hindsight. Tim Ferriss first wrote this book in 2007 with an updated version in 2009 which is the one we have today. That was nearly 14 years ago, and since then, the internet and social media has exploded, and COVID has forced millions of people into remote work. In the meantime, Tim Ferriss has grown uber successful in investing, his number one ranked podcast, and helping fund psilocybin research for depression and cancer patients at Johns Hopkins. The point is that I think the data supports what Tim Ferriss has to say and what we will hear today. My personal experience with this book has been spectacular, and to be honest, kind of kicked me back into high gear. You ever have those periods where you're going through the motions and life seems okay, but that spark isn't there? And then something comes along and wham, snaps you out of it? I want this book to be that for you as it is for me. I first read The 4-Hour Workweek when I was 19, and I enjoyed it, but reading it this second time, it's at a whole nother level. And the key difference is doing the exercises, taking ideas, and putting them down on paper. At the end of this episode, there will be a fear-setting exercise, and I can't recommend it enough. It has the potential to quite literally change your life. Before we dive into the reading, in just a moment, I want to point something out. Rather than get annoyed by the adventurous lifestyle Mr. Ferris talks about, or immediately cast it off as something entirely out of your reach, know this. You aren't lazy. You just have weak goals. The level of action we take is directly related to our level of commitment. Big, audacious goals get us moving, so don't worry so much right now about how it's going to happen. Believe, for just a moment, that with a clearly defined purpose and the power of momentum, we can really live life on our own terms. If you're game, if you're willing to at least explore what hyper-successful Mr. Tim Ferriss has to say about life and work, gather around, listen close and join me as we journey into the 4-Hour Workweek. Quote, 
The most fundamental of American questions is hard for me to answer these days, and luckily so. If it weren't, you wouldn't be holding this book in your hands. So, what do you do? Assuming you can find me, hard to do, and depending on when you ask me, I'd prefer you didn't, I could be racing motorcycles in Europe, scuba diving off a private island in Panama, resting under a palm tree between kickboxing sessions in Thailand, or dancing tango in Buenos Aires. The beauty is, I'm not a multimillionaire, nor do I particularly care to be. I never enjoyed answering this cocktail question because it reflects an epidemic I was long part of, job descriptions as self-descriptions. If someone asks me now and is anything but absolutely sincere, I explain my lifestyle of mysterious means simply. I'm a drug dealer, pretty much a conversation ender, and it's only half true, besides. The whole truth would take way too long. How can I possibly explain that what I do with my time and what I do for money are completely different things? That I work less than four hours per week and make more per month than I used to make in a year? For the first time, I'm going to tell you the real story. It involves a quiet subculture of people called the new rich. What does an igloo-dwelling millionaire do that a cubicle dweller doesn't? Follow an uncommon set of rules. How does a lifelong blue-chip employee escape to travel the world for a month without his boss even noticing? He uses technology to hide the fact. Gold is getting old. The new rich are those who abandon the deferred life plan and create luxury lifestyles in the present using the currency of the new rich, time and mobility. This is an art and a science we will refer to as lifestyle design. I've spent the last three years traveling among those who live in worlds currently beyond your imagination. Rather than hating reality, I'll show you how to bend it to your will. It's easier than it sounds. My journey from grossly overworked and severely underpaid office worker to member of the new rich is at once stranger than fiction and, now that I've deciphered the code, simple to duplicate. There is a recipe. Life doesn't have to be so damned hard. It really doesn't. Most people, my past self included, have spent too much time convincing themselves that life has to be hard. A resignation to 9 to 5 drudgery in exchange for, sometimes, relaxing weekends and the occasional keep it short or get fired vacation. The truth, at least the truth I live and will share in this book, is quite different. From leveraging currency differences to outsourcing your life and disappearing, I'll show you how a small underground uses economic sleight of hand to do what most would consider impossible. Options. The ability to choose is real power. This book is all about how to see and create those options with the least effort and cost. It just so happens, paradoxically, that you can make more money, a lot more money, by doing half of what you are doing now. End quote. Time and mobility. Identifying and, in some cases, building a system that puts us in charge of how we use our most important resource, our focus. Today's reading resonates very much with the Stoic philosophy of Seneca, which makes sense because Tim Ferriss is a huge fan and consistently praises Seneca for literally saving his life. If you are interested in learning more about Seneca and Stoicism, you can listen to my episodes on him, which can be found in the show notes. I started the reading with this excerpt for two important reasons. The first is that it introduces us to Tim's sense of humor, which is huge, because without it, this might just be another boring how-to manual that affects zero change. Also, the humor is helpful when we get into more serious, stressful self-examination. 
being able to humor our stress and laugh in the midst of pain is a valuable skill. Second, this excerpt starts to peel back Mr. Ferris's philosophy that the old 9-to-5 system of work is a broken system, and more today than ever can be consciously replaced by a better, more tech-savvy system for generating financial and emotional wealth. And with that, back to the book, quote, Challenging the status quo versus being stupid. Most people walk down the street on their legs. Does that mean I walk down the street on my hands? Do I wear my underwear outside of my pants in the name of being different? Not usually, no. Then again, walking on my legs and keeping my thong on the inside have worked just fine thus far. I don't fix it if it isn't broken. Different is better when it is more effective or more fun. If everyone is defining a problem or solving it in one way and the results are subpar, this is the time to ask. What if I did the opposite? Don't follow a model that doesn't work. If the recipe sucks, it doesn't matter how good a cook you are. 1. Retirement is worst case scenario insurance. Retirement planning is like life insurance. It should be viewed as nothing more than a hedge against the absolute worst case scenario. In this case, becoming physically incapable of working and needing a reservoir of capital to survive. Retirement as a goal or final redemption is flawed for at least three solid reasons. A. It is predicated on the assumption that you dislike what you are doing during the most physically capable years of your life. This is a non-starter. Nothing can justify that sacrifice. B. Most people will never be able to retire and maintain an even hot dogs for dinner standard of living. Even 1 million is chump change in a world where traditional retirement could span 30 years and inflation lowers your purchasing power 2-4% per year. The math doesn't work. The golden years become lower middle class life revisited. That's a bittersweet ending. C. If the math does work, it means that you are one ambitious, hardworking machine. If that's the case, guess what? One week into retirement, you'll be so damn bored that you'll want to stick bicycle spokes into your eyes. You'll probably opt to look for a new job or to start another company. Kinda defeats the purpose of waiting, doesn't it? I'm not saying don't plan for the worst case. I have maxed out my 401ks and IRAs I use primarily for tax purposes. But don't mistake retirement for the goal. Less is not laziness. Doing less meaningless work so that you can focus on things of greater personal importance is not laziness. This is hard for most to accept because our culture tends to reward personal sacrifice instead of personal productivity. Few people choose to, or are able to, measure the results of their actions and thus measure their contribution in time. More time equals more self-worth and more reinforcement from those above and around them, the new rich despite fewer hours in the office, produce more meaningful results than the next dozen non-new rich combined. Let's define laziness anew. To endure a non-ideal existence. To let circumstance or others decide life for you. Or to amass a fortune while passing through life like a spectator from an office window. The size of your bank account doesn't change this, nor does the number of hours you log in handling unimportant email or minutia. Focus on being productive instead of busy. End quote. This last excerpt might have ruffled some feathers, and that is to be expected. It's a situation where practically everyone can get upset. My friends will get upset because they find themselves 
locked in an 80-hour work week. My other friends are just now Googling what an IRA Roth account is, and still others closer to retirement are kicking themselves and cursing the school system for not having been told sooner. And in the spirit of Navy SEAL Commander Jocko Willink, good. This is good. Let's use this anger and transmute it into energy and excitement. Emotion drives action, and our pain can be channeled toward more effective behavior. I'd rather be angry than sad. At least when I'm angry, I can get moving. Don't let what you can't do keep you from doing what you can. Just because you can't get the last 5 or 20 years back doesn't mean you have to sacrifice the next 20. And back to the book, quote, Then, one day, in my bliss of envisioning how bad my future suffering would be, I hit upon a gem of an idea. It was surely a highlight of my don't-happy-be-worry phase. Why don't I decide exactly what my nightmare would be? The worst thing that could possibly happen as a result of my trip. Well, my business could fail while I'm overseas, for sure. Probably would. A legal warning letter would accidentally not get forwarded, and I would get sued. My business would be shut down, and inventory would spoil on the shelves while I'm picking my toes in solitary misery on some cold shore in Ireland, crying in the rain, I imagine. My bank account would crater by 80%, and certainly my car and motorcycle in storage would be stolen. I suppose someone would probably spit on my head from a high-rise balcony while I'm feeding food scraps to a stray dog, which would then spook and bite me squarely on the face. God, life is a cruel hard bitch. Conquering fear equals defining fear. Then a funny thing happened. In my undying quest to make myself miserable, I accidentally began to backpedal. As soon as I cut through the vague unease and ambiguous anxiety by defining my nightmare, the worst case scenario, I wasn't as worried about taking a trip. Suddenly, I started thinking of simple steps I could take to salvage my remaining resources and get back on track if all hell struck at once. I could always take a temporary bartending job to pay the rent if I had to. I could sell some furniture and cut back on eating out. I could steal lunch money from the kindergartners who passed by my apartment every morning. The options were endless. I realized it wouldn't be that hard to get back to where I was, let alone survive. None of these things would be fatal. Not even close. Mere panty pinches on the journey of life. I realized that on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being nothing, and 10 being permanently life-changing, my so-called worst-case scenario might have a temporary impact of 3 or 4. I believe this is true of most people, and most would be, holy shit, my life is over disasters. Keep in mind that this is a one-in-a-million disaster nightmare. On the other hand, if I realized my best-case scenario, or even a probable-case scenario, it would easily have a permanent 9-10 to 10 positive life-changing effect. In other words, I was risking an unlikely and temporary 3 or 4 for a probable and permanent 9 or 10, and I could easily recover my baseline workaholic prison with a bit of extra work if I wanted to. This all equated to a significant realization. There was practically no risk, only huge, life-changing upside potential, and I could resume my previous course without any more effort than I was already putting forth. End quote. Did you hear that? Even your worst case scenario is only a temporary three or four. Oh, but Dixon, you don't know my problems. They are a probable and permanent ten. Maybe you're right. I don't know your personal situation, but I still think you should do this exercise. 
Most things aren't as scary in the light. It's the uncertainty of darkness that makes things so menacing. This exercise clarifies a worst case scenario. It's a very powerful place to see your biggest fear or problem and go, you know what? I can handle you. It might take some work, but you are not my downfall. Doing this exercise is so valuable because it moves us from problem mode into problem solving mode. So breathing in and breathing out. Let's do a fear setting exercise, not trying too hard to hold on to anything or figure it all out. Now, with a particular goal in mind, consider what is the absolute worst that could happen? What is a worst case scenario? What steps could you take to repair the damage? What are the outcomes or benefits of more probable scenarios? Doesn't have to be best case, just more probable. What are those benefits? If you were fired from your job tomorrow, how would you get things under financial control? What are you putting off out of fear? What is it costing you financially and emotionally to postpone action? What is it costing you financially and emotionally to postpone action? What are you waiting for? And with that, letting whatever images, ideas, or feelings dissipate, come back to the present moment. Step into the here and now. Breathing in and breathing out. You can always listen to this fear-setting exercise again, and I'll provide the questions in the show notes for you to sit down with a pen and paper. Hey, make it fun. I sat down for an hour with a cup of coffee and got after it. What is it costing your future if you don't? Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Out Loud with Dixon. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and better yet, share it with a friend. And above all else, Remember, live with presence, confidence, and love.